Welcome to episode number 21 of Patriot to the Core podcast. I'm Thad Forster, and I really thank you for listening again this week. Our guest is a World War II veteran. He's also a POW, uh, Mr. Stan Staley. Uh, he was only 18 years old when he was drafted, and then a year later he found himself a member of Patton's 3rd Army in the 4th Armored Division, uh, liberating, liberating France from the Nazis. And so this is where he was captured by the Germans in, in 1944, and he was a POW for five months. He spent Christmas of 1944 in what he called a, um, a castle prison. Uh, he could actually see and hear you know, the, the townspeople and the children out shopping for Christmas and playing in the snow and just out and about. And so, of course, it caused him to reflect a little bit on, on home and his family and if they knew where he was, if they knew that, that he was alive. Um, he was officially missing, missing in action, but he said his mother never gave up hope. Uh, she believed he was alive. And he was able to finally make it home and surprise them. They didn't; they weren't expecting him when he came back. But he supplied, surprised them one early Sunday morning. Uh, he has really quite the posterity now. He had, they had, he and his wife had ten children. Uh, Fifty, they have fifty-three grandchildren as of now, and sixty-plus great-grandchildren. So uh, he's just a very pleasant guy, very positive, and he was a trooper for this interview. I mean, he held up. We went, we went longer than I anticipated, and I uh, really appreciated his time. So let me, let me let me bring on Stan now. Well, Mr. Staley, it's an honor to have you with me today. I appreciate you joining me on Patriot to the Core, uh, and I uh, uh, just wanted to start first and just say and ask you, you know, what circumstances led to you joining the Army, and in what year was that? Uh, that was, I joined the Army in 1943, in December, 1st of December, 1943. I was 18 year old, years old, and I was drafted. Okay. And I didn't volunteer. I was just drafted at the Army. Did you have an inkling that you were going to be drafted? Oh, yes. I had an inkling, and my brother, just two years older than I, had been rejected because he had uh, Bright's disease when he was a kid, and he was rejected. He had kidney trouble, and so I just prayed that <laughs> that I would be healthy enough to make it through, which I was. I I didn't have any ailments. So what kind of warning did you have? Uh, When you were drafted, how long did you have until you reported to the Army? I was, uh, it was the 20th of November when when I was notified of my induction. And then uh, I told them. Till, uh, I think it was the second of December that they actually called us and reported the bus. Okay, yes, so that, not long at all. Yeah, not very long. Well, less than two weeks sounds like. Yep. Well, Mr. Staley, I'd like to fast forward a little bit to your time in Germany in the war and uh, and you and. and by the way, you know, I was introduced to you because I read an article uh, about you being a POW during Christmas time, and I forgot what year that was. But do you, can you, will you just share with us, you know, how you were, what led up to you being captured, and then, and then we'll talk about your time in the, in the, as a POW. Uh, yes, we'd, we'd make the dash across France. I was in the Patton's Third Army, and then. General Woods, 4th Armored Division. I was a replacement. I wasn't a member of the old unit because I was too young, but I was the replacement. Uh, in France, uh, uh, in 1st of August, so D-Day would have just passed. Of course, the... the signs of the war 
to need them raised somewhere on Normandy was all very fresh still. But to join the unit there, and, and we dashed across France. The 4th Armored Division was the spearhead division of uh, the 3rd Army that, that made that dash. I think it was 72 days that took us to go all the way across the parade to France. But, but uh, in a little town called Rimsdorf over in the Soir Valley, we uh, just taken a town called uh, Rimstore and uh, as we took the town it was all ablaze because uh, we thought it was our shells and, and doings but I learned when I went back in uh, 2007 and talked to the people that were there then. And they said that the Germans set the town on fire before they withdrew. And they withdrew from the town that day on the on the second of of December, just a year after I'd been inducted and and uh was there in the war. They uh the Germans withdrew out of that town as we took the town, and then four of us, one from each squad, was sent up to the edge of the forest where the Germans had gone into the forest. And they, we were supposed to set up a listening post situation so we could tell the strength somewhat of the of their forces in that forest, the Leeborbush forest. And uh so we set up our outpost there just on the edge of the forest because we knew the Germans were behind the trees just in in the forest. So uh during the early morning Hours, it was a Sunday morning, December the 3rd, 1944, when uh, the Germans counterattacked. We had seen nine Tiger tanks go into them as we took the town and they backed off into the forest. So we knew they had a sizable force back in there. And they did counterattack that morning in the course, overran our little outpost. <laughs> and our, our forces down in the valley were awake and sat there and watched them take us because they said they were afraid if they fired on us that we'd get killed. So rather than fire, they just let the Germans take us. That's how I got captured. Well, how, how did they how did they um, overrun y'all? I guess uh, when you had driven them out of town earlier, what happened? Did they just did they did you have some some of our forces leave? What, no. What, what, what made what happened? The circumstances were simply that that we were right up to the edge of their lines, the four of us. And there was a great big bear uh, uh, pasture area between us and our forces down in the bottom of the valley. And uh, our forces were sufficient. Had we not been there, we could have repulsed that uh, counterattack. But because we were there, our my squad leader was from East Palestine, Ohio, and he came out west here to meet me and visit with me after the war. He said that that they were all ready. We had our tanks and half tracks 
calipers and hunted on them and all kinds of uh, armory, and then we had the, the the guys behind us with the martyrs and everything and you know, all that. But they were, I, I don't know if there was a spirit of camaraderie that you just didn't kill your own soldiers. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, we, uh, there was nothing we could do. We could counter the attack, and there was no place for us to go or maneuver in any way. We brought right out in an open pasture just before you got into the forest. And uh, when they when they lined up at the edge of that forest and zeroed in on our on our uh, unit there, out uh, there was no place for us to go. There was another factor under him that made me know before we went up there that we'd never get back. We'd either be killed or captured or something because the lights from the the burning town down below us and back of us lit up that whole hillside and the, and the Germans were up there in the dark in that forest looking right down at us. Ah, and I see. They, so they, they knew where we were mm-hmm. or they, so they knew uh, where to concentrate their efforts before they bypassed us them and went on down there. The, the big final battle for, for France was fought on the third that day that we captured, and the next day that ended the, the French part of the war. Then it was shortly after that that, that the Third Army was called back up into to uh, rescue the Bastogne and the 101st Airborne people that were tied up in, up in there. So, so the Germans so capture you, and then how many did they capture? Four of us. The four of us. So what did they so do, on, and what did they tell you? The first words out of the mouth uh, of the one that was talking said in perfect English, the war's over for you. And we thought that we were all going to be shot right there. But the next words out of his mouth was, he said, and he looked at my dog tag and it had Staley written on it, which, uh, which is a Swiss-German name. And he said, uh, you're in Germany. He said, why are you here fighting me? <laughs> fighting oh. us. Uh, and that was the first words out of their mouth. And then they forbid us to talk to each other and just uh, we were three days getting a foot getting from Rimstor uh, across the Rhine River up, up, up to uh, Frankfurt where, where the castle was. The so you place. walked three days you said? Yeah. Okay. Well, Mostly a fact, though, because the, they didn't expose us very much. So ha- I'm curious now, I mean, did you see or feel a lot of hatred, you know, in their eyes and in their voice? And, and, and then how did they treat you? I, uh, that's the marvel of it all. And, and why I have the feelings about war that I do is because... Uh, they were very, very refined, very, uh, if, if I'd have been on the edge of my country and seen what 
the enemy was doing with the bombers and the, <laughs> everything, I think I'd have been a lot more mean than they appeared to be. I never, I never saw the hatred in their eyes. Okay. Their countenances. No. Well, as a matter. Sorry, go ahead. As a matter of fact, in the in the prison camp later on and through the winter, uh, the boys that uh, that uh, guarded us, our guards, were disabled soldiers off the front lines, and uh, when the big shots, the Gestapo agents weren't in view, they were out of sight. They used to motion us over behind box cards and pull out their wallets and show us pictures of their families and their huh. and all those kind of So how were why, how were you treated? You know, what in the camp overall? Overall, uh uh, I guess, from my point of view, I've always told my family that they kept me alive, <laughs> and uh, and I wasn't beaten or I wasn't uh, treated harshly, but very firmly. They made it clear that their famous words were Nick Sarbite and Nick Sass. You don't work, you don't eat. And I, growing up through the Depression here in Enterprise, Utah, I learned that if you didn't work, you didn't eat. Because there were no handouts in those days. There was, yeah. There was just you had to grab it out whatever you could grab out so what kind you, of work did you do I was I was uh, my dad was a rancher and farmer we had cattle and horses and I grew up with cattle and horses raising feed to feed and uh, and a little dairy herd that we uh, got a little milk it came from that the we shipped out and got a few dollars you know, once a week. Had a little bunch of chickens, but we I got, gathered a few eggs and sold and traded it to the stores. Uh, just, I think it was about the same as every place in the country, you yeah. know. What, what, what kind of work did you do as a prisoner? Uh, we were sent out, 75 of us were sent out of the big main stalag, which was 4B. But 75 of us were sent down to a, to a, a rail center uh, and put toward the digging and building bomb shelters for the workers. And also when the, uh, when the bombers started coming in, the land lease bombers manned by Russians started coming in and bombing, and they ended up putting us on the railroad, uh, mending railroad, replacing ties and rails and so you said you were never beaten and you were treated pretty well, but is it true that, uh, I know it seems like you, you were cold, and uh, did they take your clothes from you quite often? Uh, every night, and the weather was colder than Enterprise, and it was zero degrees here the last two or three nights. And it was colder than that there in that <laughs> camp. We were, and uh, every night, just about this time of night, I 
I guess a little later in the country, but but uh, just about dark when they'd bring us in, they'd we'd have to strip off all of our clothes and and they hung them on hangers and and we had to take them down to the end of a little wooden barracks and uh, they locked them in a room down there. And we'd go down about daylight in the morning and pick them up. So talk about cold. Yeah, I know what cold is. <laughs> so how did you, I mean, what did you sleep on and did you have anything to cover up with? Each, each one of us had a little light blanket. A little, like the little throw blankets you uh-huh. throw up for comfort in your house. And uh, two of us, they were we were in bunk beds, and two of us slept together in a little single bunk. But uh, one of us would put a blanket on the bottom and one over the top. That's all we had. There was a big pot-bellied coal or wood-burning stove in the middle of the room, but there was no fuel for it, so we had no heat. It was just no, just a a little shiplap lumber building without any insulation and without any uh, what we call a sheet rocker anything on the inside, just the lumber outside. And uh, on the 13th of February, uh, the the, uh, alarm sounded for air raid, and they came and kicked us out of the barracks and out into slit trenches full of snow in the back. And there we waited till the, till the airplanes all went out of, beyond the radar or whatever it was, and the all clear something. And then, and then we'd go back into the barracks, get in our little blankets, and, and uh, just about the time we got settled down a little bit, the air raided si- sirens would sound again. The airplanes had dropped their load and then turned around and headed back. So we were so we went over and for three nights that lasted and I've learned since in my studies that they were bombing Dresden and, and if you've done any study of, of uh, the war on the Eastern to learn about the destruction of Dresden, uh, Germany. Yeah. But it was 40 miles where I camp. Okay. So, Mr. Staley, when you're laying there at night, did you did you lay there and think much and ponder about you know what what a predicament you were in, what your family was doing, or were you just so exhausted that you? You you just you slept when you laid down. Uh, we we slept when we quit shivering, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember. I don't recall ever worrying very much about about the family or about things at home. My only worry that in that regard was that I was alive and my folks back home probably didn't even know it. That my mother might be uh, mourning my death and and my siblings, my family. But I was still alive. So and did they think that you were at that point? Were you officially missing? I was missing in action. The, the War Department issued the uh, and uh, my captain. Uh, uh, received a, well they received my mail and uh, and he just wrote a big 
deceased up across the front of that letter and returned it to my mother. And uh, so everybody thought that I was dead. Oh, no. Mother. But my mother had told me, she said, I'll never accept anything except you come home whole and physically fit, like the Lord told you in your patriarchal blessed. So just while I was home on furlough before I shipped overseas, I had that blessing. And that was one of the things I was told. That is, if I would go believing that I'd return home whole and physically fit, so no, your mom wasn't going to doubt until she saw a body. So she was a pretty faithful lady. She was faithful. That, uh, that mother of mine, she lived by her faith. Her, she had an old saying, she says, As your faith is, so shall it be. Yeah. Well, bless her heart. I mean, I can't imagine... You know, just getting that news and either thinking and people telling you that your son has been killed or he's missing in action, either one, it would it would still be devastating. You know, even if even without accepting it, it would be awful wondering, you know, where's my little boy at? What's he going through? Hmm. Uh, Mr. Stanley, sorry, go ahead. My mom also said, if anybody don't make it, stand well. (laughs) <laughs> she just knew my nature, and that she had faith in me too. Yeah. So what happened? You said four of you were captured. So where was the rest of your? Was everyone else killed? No, the rest of them. The we had, we had all parked right down in that little area, all over our tanks. And half-trash vehicles. Uh, all of us were parked down in the bottom of that little... All of their little towns are down in the bottom. And then their little farmland and pastures are up on hillside slopes. And we had taken the town and, and uh, parked our vehicles for the night down there. And then we walked up the hill to the forest where we set up our our outpost, the the four of us. And uh, the battle that ensued after they captured us, at least uh, when they captured us, they stirred up our troops to where they were awake and alert. And there was a battle for that day and the next day. And our troops were not killed. There's a big, beautiful plaque on a big rock. Uh, That's our union, just a a few blocks away from from Rimsdorf, where it tells about the liberation of France on the fourth day of December. Uh, And I have a picture standing there with my finger pointed to that date on that flag. When did you do that? When did you take that picture? That was taken in 2007 when I went back to Germany and to France and to Switzerland. Retraced right there, the the old gun emplacement where we set up our uh, our outpost was right on the edge of that forest. It was a big concrete structure. The Germans had a 20 millimeter uh, gun on it which overlapped the town when we were coming in to take the town. They took the gun, but 
the old mon or the old uh, concrete structure was still there, and it was still there 63 years later in 2007 when we went back there. I took my wife and and some of the family that was with us uh, up to that monument, or up to that gun emplacement, and showed them right where I dug my last hospital. Because the, the old concrete thing is still there. Mm. Amazing. The gun emplacement. So what kind of feelings did that stir up when you were there in 2007? Well, uh, I'll tell you next. But there was a guy, there was a guy in Rimstorf. He had a, the bread and, bread and breakfast. Bread and breakfast. The unit that we had planned to stay at before we even left home. Had it all mapped out, planned out. When we went, there to that place uh, and registered in. They took us up to a little room and I looked out the window and I said to my wife, I can see the place where I was standing when the Germans overran our outposts. It was right out from, and up the hill from the window to our bedroom. Wow. Place we had rented for the night there. But but the people there uh, just treated us royally. There was a guy there from the German army, there was a guy there from the French army, and me from America. Uh, all right there together. And uh, and uh, one from France, the French boy, he was just my age, and he remembered the war. And he uh, took me in his car. He says, you people could follow me in your car if you want, but I'm going to take this guy and we're going to go around to all the battlefields and, and points where he fought and was, which we did and he did. And uh, they did, they treated us royal. They, uh, you, you just uh, you come to realize when you get this insight into war and into people's lives that war is devilish and is instituted by devils and these imps uh, to, to a great extent there are those a few exceptions like the, like the war for independence and that but most wars you can try to kill and destroy and yeah and air down yeah so mr staley how how long were you a POW well I was a POW from December the 3rd 1944 till May the 6th 1945, a little over five months, all the way through through what the Germans said was the coldest recorded history in Germany. Whoa. That happened to be that one. So how did you find out that you were being released? (laughs) We were out on the job doing our regular work and some big officials with their armbands and black 
dressed in black with their armbands and everything. My officials came out and jabbered back and forth in German. We didn't learn too much German only the commands toward us, but we understood enough to know that that it had to do with the ending of the war. And right after they left, they rounded us up. It was about 10 o'clock or 11 in the morning before dinner time, lunch time. And they, they took us back into the uh, stockade and left the gate open. And they went into a big storeroom and, and got out a uh, Red Cross food package, a 10-pound package, which they were supposed to have given us one of those every week. That was according to the Geneva Convention. However, we only got that one hmm. that they gave us when the war was over. So... So they opened the gate and they said, your troops are down that way and pointed down toward Prague, Czechoslovakia. And they didn't tell us how far or anything else. And they said, you can either stay here and wait for your troops to get to come or you can leave and find them. And there were four of us again that, that uh, took our little... Red Cross packages and, and walked out to gate and headed south. <laughs> was there any part of you that didn't trust them? What? Was there any part of you that didn't trust the Germans and you thought they may try to kill you? If you left? No, I, no. No, no but I always felt that the Germans knew that they were going to lose the war. From all through the time I was there, and that they knew that their consequences would be worse if they harmed us and if they yeah. treated us decently. It was one thing I thought in my mind. And another one was that I, being of German descent myself, I I knew that people were pretty decent, and, and I learned from the war that, that wars are, are perpetuated by leaders, not by the common people. Common yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people are just like we are. I yeah. conveyed that idea in that little story you read, that those people are like us. I mean, just the people. But leaders perpetuate all kinds of trouble. Yeah. Yeah, good point. So when did your family find out? When did they find out you were alive? And, you know, when did you talk to them? And how did that come about? Well, we had no media like we've got today. Uh, <clears throat> I wrote a letter after I got back to our unit, back to American lines. I was on the French coast for a month recuperating from a, a prison war experience. Uh, during that month, I wrote quite often to them. But I never told them anything about coming home. I got it in my mind that I just wanted to walk up to the doorstep and open the door at home. And I made it clear to Cedar City, which is 45 miles to the east of us here, uh, on a bus before I finally ended up on a Sunday morning over there. There wasn't an automobile on the streets, nor, nor uh, a person inside. 
I went into a little restaurant there that was open and called home, and, and uh, we only had one telephone in Enterprise, and so the people had to get out of bed, go to my house, tell them that I was in Cedar City and I needed a way home. But I felt bad that I that I couldn't make it all the way home without a phone. But they didn't know that I was even in the U.S. of A. Oh, yeah. And they made it almost home. So what was yeah. that that reunion like? Well, I think, I think that's one of the things that would be hard to describe. Um, I just, I just, uh, we, we were raised up different back in those days. I mean, we didn't have a lovey-dovey kind of relationship. Families were solid, but not just soft, you know. Mm-hmm. In the Depression days, the best thing a dad could do for you is and you a full-grown, uh, full-size shovel or pitchfork that make you feel like you're a man when you're about eight or ten years old. Hmm. I was so... I almost worship my dad. He was an old cowboy. He had cattle and things when he was still single. And... Uh, <clears throat> And so he was just my idea of why I didn't think there was anybody like him. So I think taking a hold of his hand, you didn't hug and, and show emotion that way like we did today. Uh, I just took a hold of his old hand on the, on the sidewalk in, in Cedar City. When they came over to pick me up, and I'll never forget uh, grasping his hand. And his hands were working hands. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were rough. They were calloused. <laughs> they were calloused, yeah. Yeah. Well, did you have your uniform on? Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Wow, what a sight, I'm sure. Well, Mr. Staley, what, what uh, advice do you... Uh, sorry, did you want to go ahead and... Didn't mean to cut you no. off. No, oh, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead what, what, What's some of the advice that you give your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren now? No, what's the question? What, what, like, what, what kind of advice happened? do you give your, your posterity now? You know, it could be related to anything. I mean, I know that's a broad question. Uh, well, I I must have given them something good because I've got I've got nine children, eight living though I've lost two. I've got uh, I've got fifty three grandchildren and and over sixty great grandchildren, and I haven't got a bad apple in my soul. <laughs> Wow. Because, uh, and and I don't think it's because of my advice. I I've got here during the holidays, people have come from the Mexican border down there, the border guard agent uh, that I'm looking at this picture with me here on my right where I eat my meals, and I. Uh, my kids are just about as good as they come. I was just talking. I just had my son and his family drop in here just before time for this call. And uh, out of Cedar City, where they live in Cedar City. And he has a big business there. And... Uh, 
Oh, oh David, the one that, the one that. Uh, yeah, the one I talked to. Yeah. Well, I just talked to him. He was just there, and uh, <clears throat> and he just uh, uh, was telling me about some connections that I could that he could work out to help me with what you're doing, you know, to get results or whatever, get results of it. Oh, great. But, uh, but in my patriarchal blessing, it told me that, that the Lord had a mission for me as an elder in Israel, preaching the everlasting gospel to the nations of the earth. And the thing I was going to note about today, he just got back from Argentina on one of his business trips to see how he could open up Argentina's a country for these machines he builds to process hay. So, so uh, in South Africa, he's been there. And and New uh, Australia, and all over the Western United States, there he's got these machines, but in Mexico. But the point being that as he sat here, all he did, talking about his trip down to Argentina, was the wonderful people he met, and the wonderful relation of how loving and kind people are one another, how hardworking they are, and and those are the ripples that come from what I advice I gave my my kids growing up. I said, uh, don't only work hard, but love to work. Learn to love to work, which every one of them do. And they work their little heads off. And a lot of it's voluntary help to people that are less fortunate. Yeah. I've got dental technicians, mechanics. Well, I think we've got... Uh, a, 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 Definitely a diminishing population of people who love to work. <laughs> I, I, I do too, and, and it's it's kind of too bad that yeah. we've got a socialist system trying to kill that in Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So. Well, Mr. Staley, this has been a a great pleasure. I know it's not easy for you to talk this long, and I. I I thank you well, for spending this time with me. I, I'm I'm so grateful that my voice has stuck with me as well as it has. Well, I am too. I, you you know you told me when we talked yesterday that you weigh you know you can still fit into your uniform from World War II, and I that can you about yeah your weight is I about got, the same as it was when you were released from the camp. Is that right? Yep. 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 How much Maybe is that? Maybe one pound less. <laughs> I think I weigh about 118 now. Okay. And I weigh 119. Wow. So, well, is there anything in closing that you'd like to say or, or uh, like to add to, to this? My only, my only concluding thought is that I. Uh, like Will Rogers used to say, I've never met a man I didn't like. I've never met a person I didn't like. And that it makes it so easy to live by that little law that the Lord gave us, where he says, love thine enemies, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of Father in heaven. So, and that's the closing 
well, if we will love one another as he loves us. Uh, people are drawn to love. Well, that's powerful because you, you know, because I know you have not harbored ill feelings towards the the Germans and the people who captured you and, and caused you to freeze to death every night and eat, you know, uh, crappy food. Well, uh, I'll tell you this, I, uh, my bringing up taught me that, that, that you can survive on a little or nothing, but, but you've got to have love in there. You've got to have the right feelings. I think people are going to the hospitals, to the doctors, and to get medicine for this man when a little love would have cured a lot of their ailments. That's just how I simply feel. And I'm 91 now. I, I, I can't walk, but I can sure get around and with the help of all the good people around me, I still love life, still enjoy and appreciate appreciation is probably the key to it all. If we learn to love and appreciate what we have, we're not out worrying about how we can get something else from somebody else. So whatever you have there with be content, huh? Yes, sir. Yes, yes sir. Well that's great. I it's been truly an honor. Thank you for the time. And um... If you enjoyed this podcast, reviews are always appreciated. So please go to iTunes and give us a rating and, uh, and write a review. Uh, you can also look up show notes at thadforrester.com forward slash Stan Staley. And Staley is spelled S-T-A-H-E-L-I. Or you can just go to patriottothecore.com. Any questions or comments, please email me. I'd love to hear from you, thad at patriottothecore.com. Until next week, thank you very much for listening.